I've titled the message, What is Baptism for the Dead? What is Baptism for the Dead? Now, for the one who is clicking on the slides, there is only one slide today, and this is it. So you can just relax and not worry about clicking through more slides. What is Baptism for the Dead? Well, for those who are involved in or interested in ancestry, uh, several of us sent um, tubes of saliva off to Ancestry.com, uh, which is actually run by the Mormons. And then they send back your DNA results and say, this is where your family comes from. Now, the Mormons have an interesting practice, which is they do baptisms for the dead. That's the reason why they're so interested in Ancestry. That's why they run Ancestry.com and all the related websites that are connected to that that you might not know are owned by them, but they are owned by them. And that is because they believe that they can baptize someone who's alive on behalf of someone who died a long time ago. So they want to see all of their ancestors, all of their loved ones, make it into heaven, and they believe that this vicarious baptism will do that. It will save them. So that's why they're doing as much ancestry research as they possibly can. Think about it. If you were in that position and this were how it was, you would want that too, right? You know, if you could get your, you know, great-great-grandfather who was not a very nice guy, you could get him into heaven by you going to church and getting baptized on, on his behalf, then sure, why not? Now this concept of baptism for the dead, this text today is where the Mormons get that idea from, but we have to deal with the question of what is baptism for the dead, or what were the Corinthians doing, and why is it addressed like this? Um, but fortunately or unfortunately, there are two other points also in this passage that are not connected to baptism for the dead at all. So it's not exclusively a topical sermon on baptism or baptism for the dead, but rather the, these are fruits of the reality of the resurrection, and baptism for the dead is just one of those points. So if, as you're listening, you hear points two and three, and you say, wait, what does this have to do with baptism for the dead? And it has nothing to do with baptism for the dead. Don't worry, you didn't miss a logical connection. I just titled the sermon this way because this is more interesting than points two and three. <laughs> so we have this concept. Mormons baptizing people on behalf of their dead relatives. Let's read verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? Verse 30 has nothing to do with verse 29. He just continues his discussion of other things. He says, and why do we stand in jeopardy or in danger every hour? So we're not worried about verse 30 right now. We'll worry about that in a moment. We're just focused on verse 29 and what is happening here. If I did have a slide on the screen, point number one is and would be, why do you do weird and superstitious rituals if there is no resurrection? Paul is speaking to the Corinthians and he is addressing a practice that they have which scholars say there are, or pastors say about scholars, that there are some 40 different views of what baptism for the dead could possibly be. 40 different views, 40 different interpretations. So those who go to the Bible study at the Gerlais house that um, Nate is teaching, he discussed this text a couple weeks ago. And I believe, if I remember right, he argued for a particular interpretation. Well, that particular interpretation is one of 40. 
I was joking with Emma this, uh, the other day, and I said, well, um, the structure of the sermon today is going to be uh, discussing all 40 of those, and we'll give one minute to each of the 40 views, and then we'll close with 20 minutes of, of application. And she said, really? And I said, no. <laughs> that would, <laughs> that's not what preaching is supposed to be. Um, one commentator says, there is little point in canvassing, canvassing even the more plausible suggestions out of the 40. There's little point in even surveying the plausible suggestions. The language points to vicarious baptism. If we reject this, we are left to conjecture. So what is the baptism for the dead? This is the reason why you're here today, and you're going to leave after you find out. Well, pack your bags, because this is what it is. <laughs> vicarious baptism. Being baptized on behalf of someone who's dead, your dead relative. That's what the Corinthians were doing. That's just a, a straightforward reading of the text. It doesn't make much sense theologically. Paul doesn't argue against it, which raises a set of questions about that. And it's addressed nowhere else in the Bible. It only appears in church history, I believe, one other place, and that's in the 200s with a cultic false religion that popped up and said, oh, hey, they did this, so we're going to do it too. And then there is 1,600 plus years of silence, and then a cult leader named Joseph Smith in upstate New York appears on the scene having seen a vision by the angel Moroni who gave him these golden plates and said, you need to reestablish the true worship of God, and oh, by the way, baptism for the dead is part of that. It's not, but that's what he saw. That's what he thought. So the Corinthians have many problems. We're not going to resurvey them all now, but um, for those who are new to Christianity or new to our church or new to any of this discussion, just take my word for it. The first 14 chapters, for, for, the first 14 chapters of this book are filled with problems. If you don't know what they are, ask the person next to you. They can like write out a few of them. I've listed a couple. The Corinthians have many problems. Strange teaching, cultic groups, factions, sexually immoral practices, pride about the sexually immoral practices, and a three-ring circus of wild displays of spiritual gifts in their Sunday services. There's wild and crazy stuff going on in the Corinthian church, and then they've written to Paul asking for his advice on these things, so he's writing to them. On top of those things, the Corinthians are also baptizing people who are alive on behalf of people who are dead. That's weird. Paul is clearly arguing in this text for the truth and reality of the resurrection of Jesus. That's his point. He's saying Jesus is alive, and if Jesus isn't alive, here's all the implications of that. He's arguing for the reality of the afterlife. Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' life after death, and then resurrection. Now he's alive today at the right hand of the Father. And he's arguing for our life after death, our future resurrection as well. And what he's saying is, why would you do this strange practice, as strange as it is, if the dead don't rise at all? In other words, your views and your practices are contradicting themselves. You might wonder, Andy, we're not about to start baptizing dead people, right? And we're not going to start baptizing people for the dead people, right? And I would say, right, we're not going to do that. 
I'm not looking for you to bring forward a list of names and I'll just be like, all right, Giselle, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for your great-grandfather. And then I'm going to baptize you again for your great-grandmother and then baptize you again for your great-great-grandfather. And we have like lists of all the names of these people and she just gets baptized like 20 times for the previous 20 generations, which gets us back to like the 1700s. I'm glad we're not doing this because I've traced one of my relatives back to 411 A.D., That's a lot of generations. It's a lot of baptisms. The guy was a pagan. So we're not doing that. But Paul doesn't spend any time confronting them for that practice. Well, why is that? Well, we don't know. But we could speculate. We could deduce. We could logically reason, based on what we do know, that if he did address that, it would make a 16-chapter letter 17 chapters. He's already wrote enough. If he goes to address this, this is going to be a whole new thing, and it's already gone on quite long. Another way of thinking about this is, um, have you ever been around someone? Um, Jack and I had an encounter recently. I won't give any details about this, but we had an encounter recently with someone who... um, every single thing out of this person's mouth was an issue. Like everything. Sentence after sentence after sentence after sentence after sentence for 10, 20, 15, I don't know, at least 10 minutes of just issue after issue. And you're like, would you stop, please? Just stop talking. And like, if you're going to address those issues, where do you even begin? Some people try to say, oh, well, you need to confront them. I would want you to confront me. And I'm like, no, that person doesn't want to be confronted. And if you were this far wrong, you wouldn't want to be confronted either. This person is very aggressive. And for me to confront them requires matching that level of aggression. And then when they explode, then matching that next level of aggression, they're not going to receive any of it. And then afterwards might go and say, oh, well, you know, Andy didn't love me enough to confront me. No, I have other things to do than to spend an entire day arguing with someone who is hard-headed. So Paul has already addressed a whole bunch of issues, and it's clear that like, they're going to have trouble receiving the things he has addressed. How much harder is it going to be for them to deal with one of these minor points, relatively speaking? Have you ever been around someone who's doing something so ridiculous that you just ignore it rather than confronting it? If you're a parent, you know this experience. Your child is doing something stupid, and you're just like, you know what? I'm just going to keep talking to my adult friend here and just ignore the fact that my child is um, doing the thing that it's doing because it's not actually hurting them, or it's not... um, Because to correct every single minor point that someone is doing wrong, like when some people are so far wrong, you're going to spend your entire relationship with that person constantly correcting them. And nobody wants to live like that. Further, they're not going to receive that. You're casting your pearls before swine, as it were. You're wasting your time. I believe that's what's going on here. And for that reason, I believe that's why Paul is not even bothering to address it. There are other times in his writings where he will address a problem or name a problem, just acknowledge it, but not rebuke them for it in that moment, but he, he addresses it in other places. 
So it's not as if he must address every single issue at every single point. Please also notice that this is even how our our own spiritual life is. This is how our growth is. When we get saved, God does not deal with us about every single issue in our life the moment we get saved. That is not him winking at sin. That's not him allowing a little leaven in the camp. That's not what's happening, but rather it is the reality that our sanctification is a progressive sanctification. Our growth is slow and long and laborious. We're not Keswick's here. Keswick's is the deeper life stuff. You know, you, you, you get saved, then you're flatlining, then you dedicate your life to Christ, Then you spike up, and now you're a sanctified spiritual Christian, and you're going to then never sin again. That's not how things are. And God knows that, and so he doesn't even bother with nailing us on every single point, on every single issue in our spiritual life. And if we try to do that to other people, we're going to spend our whole relationship with that person being so critical and so nitpicky about every little thing. First off, it's going to require a massive amount of hypocrisy for ourselves because we are not that sanctified either. So it requires a high level of forbearance in our Christian life as we are tolerating the weaknesses and infirmities of one another, as our confession says, with much tenderness and sympathy. And so I believe that's what's happening here, where Paul is bearing with them in this area that he's not even addressing right now, which, by the way, for the Bible nerds out there, you know there's at least one other letter to the Corinthians that was not preserved. So he totally might have dealt with the baptism for the dead thing in that letter, but it wasn't a big enough deal that God is like, hey, we're going to preserve this letter. But I believe baptism for the dead is a vicarious baptism where a living person is baptized on behalf of a dead person. And the Corinthians were doing this. It is not affirmed by God or the Apostle Paul. We should not be doing it. We don't do it. But for whatever reason, Paul didn't confront them on it because he's confronting them on a whole bunch of other things. But the point is, why are you doing that at all if there is no resurrection? If there is no afterlife, why are you doing this weird practice that you're doing? doesn't make sense. Now, let's move on. Point two. Verses 30 to 32. Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? So point number two is this. Why do you suffer for Jesus if there is no resurrection? Why do you suffer for Jesus if there is no resurrection? So point one is why are you doing these weird and superstitious rituals if there is no resurrection? Secondly, why do you suffer for Jesus if there is no resurrection? Why did I fight with these beasts at Ephesus? Why do I stand in jeopardy every hour? Why do I die daily if there is no resurrection? This um, situation about the uh, fighting with beasts in Ephesus uh, raises the question, did Paul fight with animals in an arena in Ephesus? Well, if he did, we don't have a record of it. 
If he did, it would require that he lose his status as a citizen because Roman citizens were not thrown into arenas. And if they were thrown into arenas, they lost their status as citizens. So I don't think that that's what happened. But there is a situation described in the Bible, which I'm turning to, Acts 19, that is, I believe, what he was referencing. Acts 19, verse 23 uh, and following. Let's start at 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, made silver shrines of Diana. He brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation, and he said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that there are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised, and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials in Asia who were his friends sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. By the way, the theater's still there. I could have put a picture in, but I didn't think of it. Uh, you, can still, you can go there to this day. Um, verse 32, some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great for, for two hours, shouting that. This mob, thousands of people. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana? And of the image which fell down from Zeus, which is uh, a meteor, meteor. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give to the account for this disorderly gathering, this disorderly conduct. It was a crime to be rioting like this. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So Paul is facing this giant mob there in Ephesus. This is likely what he's referencing. Why is he fighting with animals in Ephesus? 
if Jesus isn't alive? Why is he standing up against the worship of Diana and the guy who's making little silver statues of Diana who's mad that he's going to lose money if there isn't a resurrection? If Jesus is just one of many religious leaders, why bother? Why go through this? Why do you suffer for Jesus if there is no resurrection? So for those who suffer persecution for their faith, those who are mocked at work, those who are criticized at the family dinner table, those who will be criticized at Thanksgiving dinner, probably some of you whose parents or children or aunts or uncles or grandparents don't regard your faith as legitimate. Why believe? Why suffer for that belief if it's not true? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it's not true. So Paul is saying, why do you suffer for Jesus if there is no resurrection? Well, as you are very aware, there is a resurrection and Jesus is alive. So that's the reason. That's the reason why we're willing to suffer persecution for the name of Jesus. That's the reason why those who stand out front of Planned Parenthood and advocate for the unborn and are mocked and criticized and um, cursed out and shoved and given the finger and all sorts of things, they do that because of the reality of the resurrection. Because Jesus is truly alive. When you're not willing to participate in the sinful conduct of your coworkers, when they're saying, no, come, come after work, we're going to do this thing that you know is not okay. And then they start mocking you and criticizing you and calling you a child or calling you immature because you're not going to do that thing. Why suffer that persecution? Why suffer that criticism? Oh, well, Andy, it's not real persecution because I mean, they're not like, killing, killing you. Well, your extremely narrow view of persecution is actually more narrow than the Bible's view of persecution. The Bible says, blessed are you when people mock you, revile you for the name of Jesus. It's not just when they line you up in front of a wall and shoot you. You're blessed when you suffer any suffering for the name of Jesus. But why would you do it if there was no resurrection? That's the point Paul is making here. Um, point three. Verses 33 and 34. Why? Well, let me read it first. If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. So point three, why do you deny yourself the indulgence of the flesh if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Why do you deny yourself the indulgence of the flesh if Jesus didn't, die, didn't rise from the dead? See, the, the Corinthians have this idea that, hey, he probably, he probably didn't rise from the dead. Like, nobody rises from the dead. That's impossible. The resurrection didn't happen. But we're going to still live like Christians just in case. We're still going to walk the straight and narrow just in case. And one of the main things that Paul is saying here in this chapter is that if it's false, then you're more pathetic and more pitiable and more foolish and, and more to be felt sorry for than the world. In other words, Stoicism is not in line with Christianity. 
Asceticism isn't a valid backup plan to Christianity where you say, yeah, Christianity is probably not true, but I'm going to live an ascetic life just in case. Or, to put it in a very practical way, being a secular conservative is not all it's cracked up to be. Because that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. If you're like, hey, well, I mean... I'm a conservative because it makes the most sense, but I don't believe in Jesus. I mean, it might make fiscal sense. It might make sense for your nation and for your borders. But under the inspiration of Scripture, God himself says that if this is not true, then you might as well eat and drink because you're just going to die. If you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, we should eat and drink and live it up because you only live once and there is no judgment. However, even their practice, for those who did, because a bunch of them didn't, but for those who did deny the indulgence of the flesh, even that practice points to something in their conscience that argues for the reality of the afterlife. So because there is a judgment, there is an afterlife, there is a resurrection, we are living now, not merely for the now, but for 10,000 years from now. So you only live once and after that comes the judgment. Christianity is either true or it is a complete waste of time. Think of all the hours of sleep that you've missed every Sunday morning of your life. Well, maybe you haven't been going to church every Sunday of your life, but just pity party for me for a a second. I've been going to church every Sunday of my life from before I was born until the present. Probably missed less than five Sundays in my life, including vacation. That's a lot of sleeping in I didn't do. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why did I rise from the bed? (laughs) You realize that for those who've grown up in Christian homes, not everybody in the world gets up on Sunday morning. A lot of people in in this society have two Days on their weekend instead of one. Where Saturday is the day that we get stuff done and then we go to church and then we spend time with the people of God and the next thing you know it's like 8 p.m. and then you're going to bed and you're like, oh wow, where'd my weekend go? But praise the Lord, I was with the people of God and I feel refreshed and uplifted and encouraged because of the fellowship of the saints and the means of grace and all of these things that I've participated in. Well, a whole bunch of the rest of the world doesn't do that. They, they do their errands on Saturday, and then they go golfing on Sunday. Or they do their errands on Saturday, and they go to the beach on Sunday. It's not normal in our society to dedicate a day to the worship of God. But we do it because Jesus rose from the dead. That's why we do it on Sunday. Because he was raised on a Sunday. 
So Christianity is either true or it's a complete waste of time. Think of all the hours of sleep you've missed by getting up on Sunday morning to go to church instead of sleeping in. In other words, theological liberalism is a complete waste of time. So I just used sleeping in as an illustration to attack theological liberalism. I wouldn't get up on a Sunday morning if Jesus didn't get up that first Lord's Day, that first Sunday morning, three days after he died. I don't know why people do it. The city is full of churches with the rainbow flags on the front. They're theologically liberal. They don't believe most of what the Bible teaches, but they still have some guy who shows up or, or, or they who shows up to, to, to lead the service. And I know why that, that person's there because they're being paid to be there, but there's usually like eight people in the room out of like a thousand seat auditorium. And I don't know why those eight people are there. Because it's, it's not true in their mind. But because we know that Jesus did actually rise from the dead, and it is appointed unto man once to die, and then after that comes the judgment, we want to honor Christ in our lives because we know we're not going to be saved by our works, but we're going to be rewarded through the grace of God for our works, the sacrifices that we've made for Christ. He, he gives us crowns at the final judgment, and then we, in turn, give them back to Jesus. And as I've said multiple times, when I get to heaven, I want to have something to give to Jesus. Like showing up to a party, a birthday party. Everybody's giving their gifts to the one whose birthday it is, and you have nothing to give them, and you just feel a little bit awkward. You're like, oh, hey, hi. <laughs> Thank you for letting me come to your party to eat your cake and have your snacks. I was going to get you something, but I just, you know, the store was closed, and then the train was late, and then, meanwhile, like, the reality was you just forgot or didn't think of it. But the one who has something to give, it, it, it feels good. It's better to give than to receive, and so it will be on that final day when we stand before Christ. You want to give him something. As the song says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Why would we not want to show, to demonstrate our gratitude to him for what he has done. This is the reason uh, supported by the structure of the book of Romans, guilt, grace, gratitude. We live the way that we live on the basis of the mercies of God, which we've received as a way of demonstrating our thankfulness to him for this salvation, which is entirely of grace. And then lastly, the reality of the resurrection compels our holiness, verse 34. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Our Savior is alive. Jesus, who is our righteousness, is seated at the right hand of the, God, right hand of the throne of God. Because Jesus, our righteousness, is alive... We want to live for him. Because Jesus is alive, we look to him. And that's where we have our righteousness. We look to him and we are awakened unto this gift righteousness, this imputed righteousness, which he has freely offered to all who believe. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm going to tell you that you have the offer as well. The offer is given to you that you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and so be saved. You can receive the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, the gift righteousness that he would offer to sinful people like you and like me. 
And if you receive that, then you're forgiven. Your guilt is taken away. And then instead of just being brought up to zero, then you, you have this infinite righteousness placed on your, on your account, sort of like a, a credit card that has no limit. It has infinite money on it, as it were. That money, that's the righteousness of Christ, which he earned and he gives to all of his people. Jesus is our righteousness, and that is all of our hope and plea. That is our only way of having access to God. That is our only way of being reconciled to God or making it into heaven. Without that, you're not going to make it. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. To repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To turn from trusting in yourself and you being a good person or you not being as bad as someone else you know or, or even thinking, well, God knows my heart and you know, he'll let me in eventually. No, he knows your heart and your heart is perverse. Your heart is corrupted. Your heart is, is uh, everything that you do is impacted by sinful desires and a sinful heart. And God knows that. And that means that judgment day is not going to go well for you until you give up your attempts to save yourself. And instead, look to Jesus alone as your only hope, your only savior, your only righteousness. And that's what it means to trust in him. That, that's what it means to repent. To repent and believe is, is two sides of the same coin. It's turning from sin to Christ, turning from self to Christ, to trust in Jesus alone. We, we do all of this, we say all of this, because Jesus did rise from the dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the passage today to consider. I pray that you would help us. We thank you for giving us believer's baptism, this ritual not for dead people or people who are no longer with us, but for those who are now alive in Christ to demonstrate the death and resurrection that they have experienced. They are now alive in Jesus They've been united with him in his death and united with him in his resurrection. Thank you for the way this resurrection compels our holiness, that Jesus is alive today. And so we look to him, we follow him, we trust in him. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our final two songs.